Hi, this is Matt Parker, author of A Radical Enterprise, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising Podcast. Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Hersko, back again. Join with me this week for our episode. Uh, we are sitting down with uh, Matt K. Parker, the author of per, uh, A Radical Enterprise, Pioneering the Future of High-Performing Organizations. Um, so Matt, I'm not going to attempt to give your bio. So for users, for listeners that may not be familiar with you, um, could can, can you introduce yourself? Give us a little bit of your background? Yeah, totally. Well... Well, okay. So the most recent thing I've done is write this book, but before that I wasn't actually, you know, an author. I've spent the bulk of my adult life being a programmer. Um, And I grew up in and around programming and learning programming because my dad was a programmer and my dad's dad was also a programmer. Um, So I've sort of been immersed in this world for a while and, you know, sort of been in and around it, heard lots of fun stories growing up had some pretty miserable experiences early on when I actually became a programmer myself and was very lucky to find my way into an organization that figured out that uh, we could make awesome software and have fun doing it, uh, which really changed my whole perspective and is really part of how I came to write this book itself. Um, so anyways, that's some of my background. You know, I've also played different roles like um, manager and director. And yeah, I was even a global head of engineering for a while, but, um, you know, all in and around the world of software development. So you are a third generation engineer. That is not a story. Uh, I don't think that's a story we've ever had on this show. Um, does your dad ever try to get you to dig into like COBOL and some of that old stuff or, or now? <laughs> well, he quit about uh, 15 years ago. Um, but yeah, he was a COBOL programmer, actually. And, you know, my dad's dad, um, my grandpa, when he started, um, it was pre-COBOL, right? And uh, he eventually, though, made a, a good living becoming a pro- COBOL programmer. And, you know, his, his sort of uh, retirement plan involved programming for about four months out of the year, getting paid a lot of money to do it, and then spending the next eight months of the year sitting on a lake and fishing. COBOL is the gift that keeps on giving. I jokingly say this to young professionals when they say, what language should I learn? I look at them and I say, if I say COBOL and DB2, would you get upset? And they kind of look <laughs> at you, but to your point, four months and then another eight, another eight um, sitting by a lake. That sounds, that actually sounds wonderful. Um, so Matt, let's, before we go into the contents of the book itself, um, why a book for you and why now? So what, what was the impetus that led you to put all these ideas together? Yeah. So as I sort of hinted at a minute ago, my, my sort of first decade in the world of software development um, was both shocking and depressing, right? I was, whether I was working for a, a large enterprise or a small startup, I, it somehow seemed as if people had gotten together and asked themselves, how could we we'd make the process of building software together miserable? And how could we make the worst possible outcomes? Um, and obviously no one did sit around and do that. And yet everywhere I went, right? That was the experience I and seemingly everyone else was having, right? It was stressful. Uh, We were being put on death marches, like get this done by this date. Yes, we know it's ridiculous. Too bad. You've got to do it nights and weekends. 
And I wanted to quit, honestly. I thought maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe uh, this whole programming thing isn't what it's uh, what I thought it was going to be. But um, I was very lucky to get a, uh, a email from a company called Pivotal Labs at the time, back in 2011. Mm -hmm. They asked me, hey, would you like to come in and interview? We saw some of your open source work. We think you might be a good fit here. And one of my coworkers at the time, he came over and grabbed me after I told him, he said, don't do it, don't do it, don't you know, they pair program, it's insane, you have to share a computer with someone else, don't go. And I said, I'm miserable, I'm going, I don't care, it can't be worse than what I'm doing right now. I went, I loved it, I loved it, and I was very lucky to get through the interview and to be accepted into the organization, and I got to spend you know the next really decade of my life geeking out with other software engineers doing things like pair programming test driven development not only learning the ins and outs of extreme programming but also lean and ucd and being on self-organizing autonomous teams there were no bosses running around telling us what to do and when to do it by we were actually doing what we should be doing which is figuring stuff out doing uh, figuring out what to do as we do it, right? Having ideas, testing, experimenting, putting software in the hands of users, getting feedback. It was an amazing and life-changing experience. And I, I loved it. And eventually I looked around and said, okay, what makes this work, right? Like mm -hmm. I get that I'm doing all these things. I get that it's leading to great outcomes for me and the people I work with and great outcomes for uh, the software itself and the users, right? Um, but why? Right. Why is this all so good? What's so good about it? I had no conceptual framework for understanding any of it. And I also had no idea if this was something very unique to the world of software development or if it could happen in other industries and other disciplines and other crafts. Uh, and that led me on a whole journey of research. I, you know, first diving into literature, seeing what else is out there, eventually interviewing a bunch of different companies and coming up with sort of this new picture of what's possible in the world of work and what is increasingly growing in the world of work, which I call radical collaboration. Uh, now, if you are familiar with the um, literature around uh, these types of companies, you might have discovered a whole host of names for them, self-governing, self-managing. Sometimes some specific ones are called holocratic or sociocratic, right? Like there's all these different flavors of it. Um, micro enterprises, right? New work in Germany is another new term that's coming out now, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Radical collaboration is one of the terms out there. And it's the one I chose because for me, it conveys the experience of it, right? It, it is radically different, right? When you come out of a hierarchical organization uh, uh, and you step into one of these companies and experience collaboration with them, it is radical in the etymological sense of the word, in the sense that you are touching into the root or foundation of your experiences with others. And, and it's somehow sitting on a very different sort of paradigm, very different footing. Uh, so that's the term I chose of the many I could have chosen for this book <laughs> and these types of companies. Um, and yeah, that's how I came to write this book. It, it, it feels so important to me. And, you know, and especially now with um, everything that's happened throughout the pandemic and with the great resignation and with so many people saying, right, like enough is enough. I don't want to have a shitty job with a shitty boss anymore, right? I want to actually experience meaning and purpose at work, right? You know, the growth of things like disengagement at work over the last several decades, right? It's something that's startling now, like 86%. I yeah, it's now, ridiculously high. Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, and then meaningless at work. Nine out of 10 people are willing to exchange 23% of their future lifetime earnings in order to get more meaning at work, right? That's more than they're going to spend on a house, right? So like, there's just fascinating things that are happening. I think it's a both a culmination of like, we just won't take it anymore. And we have a sense of what we want now. Uh, and so I feel like that's another reason a book like this is timely. Uh, Dave Snowden talks about the idea of weak signal detection. Right. Mm. And what you're saying, the, the fact that people are disengaged, the fact that people would give up money just to find purpose. I mean, if you're an enterprise organization, how long can you ignore this before? Truth be told, you're going to go out of business. Survival is what is it? survival is not mandatory. Was that the Deming quote? Like I, when I read this book, I was like, well, this is this is one of the opening salvos in the new paradigm of ways that especially software professionals are expected to are expecting their office to be there. This is how they're expecting to work. This is how they're expecting more importantly to be led. And I think to ignore this is a company's at their own peril to ignore yeah. this. I, I don't, yeah. I don't get it. Um, so let's, so let's dive in. So, you know, you called it a radically collaborative organization and, and real early on, there was a quote that I highlighted, by the way, you could, this is bad audio, but you can see all my notes. These are all my highlights and Hey, I should task my boss about this. Um, <laughs> it's based on the principle of linking rather than ranking. So mm. can you explain that a little bit, Matt? Yeah, totally. So there's two sort of fundamental paradigms. If you, if you take like a, you know, 30,000 foot view of organizations, there's two sort of fundamentally different paradigms that play in organizations today. One of them is very widespread. The other is much smaller, but growing. Um, the very widespread paradigm is, it has many names for it. You could call it command and control. People call it Taylorism. Some people just say it's bureaucratic, right? Um, there's a very specific name for it in the world of sociology. It's called the dominator hierarchy. And that's when rank and privilege, that's when basically the, the relationships in the organization are based on a form of ranking in which power and resources are concentrated at the top, right? In which judgments of people uh, higher up in the ranks are privileged statically over people lower in the ranks, right? And in which there is an element of coercion to any commands that come down through those mm. ranks, right? So uh, coercion is an important and almost necessary corollary, corollary of a dominator paradigm, right? And so you can see this at play, not just in organizations and governments and schools, all over the place, you can find these dominator hierarchies. Um, and the way they express and manifest themselves in corporations, I think many of us have experienced. And it is what psychologists refer to as a growth inhibiting environment, is an environment that structurally diminishes a number of basic human needs um, and leads to uh, underperformance, leads to this massive growth and disengagement and meaninglessness and mistrust and all these other very like um, uh, alarming sort of uh, things and phenomena that are happening today with respect to traditional corporations. So anyways, the other paradigm though is uh, one based on partnership and equality. Um, and it's sometimes it's just called a partnership paradigm or the partnership model or radical collaboration, but, uh, or, or heterarchy is another specific term you'll see for it in the literature, but these are organizations and groups of people that are structured yet not hierarchical, right? And so we need a name for that, right? And it's based on the principle of linking rather than ranking, right? So people in a, in a paradigm of partnership and equality, people are still creating structures and relationships, but it's not based on the idea that uh, we should privilege people's judgment statically over others and, and, and attach coercive sort of strings to any of their pronouncements, et cetera, right? Like 
it, it's based on the idea that we are fundamentally arriving together as equals. Now, that doesn't mean that leadership doesn't happen within these organizations because it does. In fact, I would argue it happens much more than in a traditional organization because they are united in the belief that leadership is contextual, that it emerges within a situation, right? That it's governed and bounded by the situation at hand, that it's granted by the trust of peers, right? It is, it is uh, a way in which leadership becomes emergent and organic over time. And I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by your use of the word coercion because yes. that is that is a, I hate to say stereotypical, but it's a stereotypical behavior of a lot of the bureaucratic organizations a lot of us have worked in, where somebody somewhere was promoted into a place, and it might be via the Peter Principle, we never talk about that, uh, but, they, <laughs> but they're promoted into a place where they're told, well, you need to coerce your people into doing things. And <laughs> that flies in the face of, everything we know about theory X and theory Y people that flies in the face mm -hmm. of old Daniel Pink's work around autonomy, mastery, mm -hmm. and purpose, right? I, I don't need you to coerce me. Just give me a, make, help me feel like I am contributing to a purpose. And, right. um, and, and, you know, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but it's especially a, a particular to us who do heuristic work, right? Knowledge work is heuristic work. It's very much yeah. trial and error. It's very much feel. Whereas mm -hmm. analog is, you know, pull the lever, get the widget. And, mm -hmm. Taylorism had its place in manufacturing, but I'm not so sure it has its place here. Um, I use the term, I actually paid someone to design me a meat widget, um, which is a cog. And I'll send you, I'll send you one, Matt. You can use it free of charge, whatever. But it's a clip art of a, of a cog that looks like a marbled steak. And I use this anytime someone says resource in a conversation. I need a Java resource. I need a, I need a testing resource. No, no, no. What you need is a person. You're not asking for like Matt, the full stack developer, or Jay. You're asking for a Java resource. You're implying they're fungible. So just call them a meat widget. And the first time you cut someone off and you say, what did you need? Oh, you need a QA meat widget. Oh, everybody gets really uncomfortable. Shout out to Craig Larman. It kind of works. Okay, so but back to the book, though. See, we talked about command and control and dominator hierarchies. We talked yeah. about this idea of, uh, and, I, and I, we are going to touch on it, the idea of no hierarchy, but there still is leadership, right? And, and mm -hmm. the idea of cells, if you think about it, it's almost like a biological system where different cells are working in concert with each other to mm -hmm. a greater end. So mm -hmm. in the book, you introduce four imper imperatives. So by the way, before we go into the imperatives, I have to say, um, if anybody listening has read Lelou's stuff, uh, Matt's comes close to it and it's much easier to read. Lelou's <laughs> editor really should, he should take a long walk up a short pier because that book is 200 pages too long. But anyway, I digress. So one of the first imperatives you talk about is the idea of team autonomy. And mm. you lay it out with six core dimensions. And I love how you, you phrase it. You call it the role, mm. the how, the when, the where, the who, and the what. Mm -hmm. And then when you go into it, I'm like, well, this just makes total sense. So for our li for our listeners, Matt, right? So I, I think the idea of autonomy of role does make sense, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's something they can mm -hmm. grasp. But when we talk mm -hmm. about the who, the where, the what, the when, how, how what do you mean by that when you talk about autonomy? Yeah. Okay, great. Well, so let me just, let me just, first, before I answer that question, I just want to say real quick uh, for your listeners, autonomy is important. Um for a couple of reasons. One, I think there's been a lot of sort of work to understand over the last century, like what actually do humans as psychological beings need, right? As physical beings, we know we need food and air and water and shelter, but what do we need as psychological beings, right? Beings that are capable of metacognition. So 
that there's a number of things that we've discovered and we need security, autonomy, fairness, esteem, trust, belongingness, love, purpose, etc. Okay, so autonomy is just one of these fundamental things that every human being comes into the world and has a need for, right? We want to live our own lives uh, and be able to make decisions that are meaningful on a day-to-day basis. We don't want to be, you know, dominated by others. All right, so um, that it turns out the degree to which people experience autonomy day to day, right? The degree to which they can make meaningful choices day to day in the pursuit of a goal or a, a common goal. So is actually highly correlated to their likelihood of succeeding, right? Because the degree to which they feel like they're autonomous and that need is not threatened and they can make decisions is also the degree to which they buy into the decisions. They feel accountable for them, right? They take responsibility and ownership for success and failure and actually can learn from whatever happens, right? Based on their decisions, like all of these great things come along with autonomy. So just from a lot of neuroscience research and behavioral science research, we know this to be true. Now, these organizations that I profile in the book, Um, which by the way, are anything from the massive 80,000 person corporation hire, which is an appliance manufacturer, down to smaller companies and newer startups like C-Labs, a cryptocurrency startup around 200 people. All right. So, and everything's sort of in between, right? All kinds of different companies. They had, I think what was just clear from the outset is that they have embraced this idea that autonomy matters, right? And that we have to give teams meaningful dimensions of autonomy, right? So that they can actually go out and iterate day to day in pursuit of an outcome. Um, And that autonomy shows up in all those dimensions that you just um, uh, mentioned, right? Some were very prevalent in some companies, some were prevalent in other companies, some in some companies, all were very prevalent. Um, But okay, so autonomy of role, right, is the idea that, okay, you should actually care and want to play the role that you're playing. If you don't like what you do, if you don't like the role you play, you're probably not going to do a great job of it. It's just sort of common sense, but there's actually also a great deal of research behind this, right? The degree to which people succeed uh, is, is tightly correlated to their, the degree to which they are choosing tasks and roles that they're playing. Okay, so the other ones are things like autonomy of schedule, right? So the idea that teams should be able to decide, are they synchronous or asynchronous? Are they distributed or co-located, right? This is an important dimension of an autonomy. And you can imagine that different teams would come to different decisions because they're made up of different human beings with different needs and different lives, right? right? They're not meat widgets. They're not (laughs) not meat widgets. widgets. Yes, exactly. (laughs) They're all unique people. Um, And uh, autonomy of uh, practice, right? So the how of what we do, right? Day to day, how are we achieving and going after our outcomes? It's actually really important and meaningful that teams can have some sort of say in how they're going about doing their work, right? And that was actually something I saw in every single one of these companies. Um, Yeah. So autonomy of what is and um, uh, who really boils down to uh, uh, processes like open allocations. For instance, W.L. Gore is a you know multi-billion dollar uh, innovation factory. They're behind all these great products that we know and love like Gore-Tec waterproof fabric, Glide dental floss, Elixir guitar strings. And they're one of the oldest radically collaborative companies on the planet. And they pioneered an open allocations process, right? Autonomy of allocation has been part of their DNA from the beginning. They felt it was so important that actually for, for people to say, actually, I want to work on this project with these people, right? And not on that project with those people. And it just makes sense because if you think about it, 
what would be more powerful? How, how could you, 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 it's hard to imagine something more powerful than an organization in which everyone is doing something that they are intrinsically motivated to do. And they're doing it with people that they care about and want to actually be with, right? And it turns out if you actually let people make meaningful decisions around allocations, you end up with a lot of people doing what they want with who they want to, right? Okay, right. so anyways, but, there's but all- to that point, to that point, Matt, you also expose the system for, failings in programs, failings in yeah. projects, right? Like everybody is familiar with the waterfall project status. It's green on the outside. It's red on the inside, right? Yeah. It becomes a very telling leading signal. If you are trying to get a bunch of people to work on your pet project and no one wants to go anywhere near it. Yes. So <laughs> is it the Jeep, the jungle or the journey? Which part of that is, is the problem that people don't want to be involved in? And that I think is, is a huge signal to be like, you know, Jay has trouble getting people on his projects, every PI planning. Well, that might say something about the project or it might say something about Jay. Jay. Yeah, totally. In fact, there's a, there's uh, some stories I tell in the book. There's a company called Tim Group that um, when they began to have an open allocations process, which they called the job fair, they discovered that they, they began to surface exactly those sort of troubling dynamics, right? Oh, the reason nobody picks your project actually isn't have anything to do with the project itself it's you no one wants mm. to work with you like and now we can actually say it right like before everyone just went along with the dysfunction and felt like they had no choice and were miserable and now we can actually bring the issue to light we can surface the problems and we can do something about them right, right. it's it's about we have to stop propagating dysfunction in organizations and the degree to which an organization is fits within the dominator model and uses coercion is actually tightly correlated to the amount of dysfunction within the company and the amount of dysfunction propagated within the company mm. day over day from team to team to team. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so we talked about autonomy, Matt, I'm going to swing you over a little bit. Um, you used the word, which I had no idea how it was, how it was defined. So I actually took a, took a step back. What the term managerial devolution. Mm -hmm. I know what evolution was and, and yeah. devolution is some of the people I've actually worked with. Um, they are <laughs> devolved, but how explain that to someone who's just seeing that in a bullet. Well, how do you explain the idea of managerial devolution? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, devolution in this context, in the context of organizational science and in political science too, for what it's worth, devolution is a technical term for the decentralization of power out of the hands of a dominator hierarchy and into the hands of a self-organizing heterarchy, right? That is a process that all of these companies either went through or are going through that are on this radical collaborative spectrum. It is about taking power out of the hands of the few and distributing it within the organization, but in a way that actually makes the organization more powerful. It's not about diluting power within the company. These organizations, I would argue, are much more powerful because here's the most important thing, right? In any single company, whether it's based on a dominator model or otherwise, in any single company, you have human beings. And what can human beings do? They can sense problems, right? They are sense-making beings, right? They are meaning-making beings, right? And they are sensing challenges. They are sensing opportunities. They are sensing tensions, sensing dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the problem is in most traditional hierarchical organizations, everyone can sense problems. Very few can do anything about them. Right. No one has the power to do anything. And in fact, that's, that's such a demoralizing aspect of a traditional hierarchy because 
when when you are struggling with a problem and then you realize that not only can your manager not do anything about it, but the manager's manager can't do anything about it and on and on and on because all they have the power to do is say no. And it seems like no one can say yes to anything, right? It is such a sad situation to be in, right? So this is about turning an organization into a sense and respond mechanism in which everyone can play a meaningful part in that process, right? Uh, and that that alone, right, is such a boon for Powerful. engagement yeah. and inspiration and passion and motivation, right? When you begin to actually see day to day, wow, we are all taking part in evolving this organization day over day, changing the design of it, the structure of it, right, to respond to challenges, resolve tensions, go after new opportunities, et cetera. That's this process of managerial devolution. Now, how that actually plays out in these companies there's, many, there's no one way that they're doing it. And I think this is going to be a common theme in what you hear from me and what you see in my book. And what I tell people is that I'm not offering you a blueprint, right? And, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that there's just one framework out there for radical collaboration that you should go download, install into your organization, and you're done. The degree to which these companies have succeeded is the degree to which they think critically day over day about what they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it and what's working and what's not and how to change. Okay, so yeah, that's just at the outset, my explanation of devolution. So, and like you said, it, this isn't a blueprint. This isn't, this, isn't, this isn't the safe big picture. You don't just lay this out and do all these things. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of fantastic ideas. The one that jumps out at me, which I actually love, which I wish more people were familiar with is the idea of the advice process. Can you mm -hmm. explain that one, Matt? Like how, how that should work in an organization that is, I mean, this ties to lowering the decision-making floor. This ties to reducing the doer decider distance. What does that advice process mean? What does that entail? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so this is, this is, all right, at a, in a nutshell, the advice process is very simple to understand. It's the idea that anyone can make a decision about anything within the organization so long as they're consulting anyone who is going to be affected by the decision, right? So they're asking, soliciting advice from others. They're making their own ideas about what should be done vulnerable to critique, examination, right? Even invalidation, right? It doesn't mean that you have to take anyone or everyone's advice. It does mean you have to solicit it, right? That's the basic idea behind it. Now that has, expresses itself in many different ways in the companies that I profile in the book. You can see it in various forms like ad hoc leadership teams at Nearsoft are sort of an example of the advice process. It's when somebody says, I have, I have something that I have a problem with that I think we can do better at. I want to I want to get together with other people who care about this problem and who want to be part of the solution on collaborating in it. And so they have this opt-in sort of process for gathering and soliciting advice and then collaborating on developing a solution, right? Um, the advice process itself, by the way, started in what it has to be the most unlikely place, the place you would never imagine <laughs> it to start. It was a, a, a an energy company called AES, right? Started in the 80s by... Uh, a couple of guys, uh, one of which was named Dennis Backey. He went on to write some great books about the experience of giving people the ability to make meaningful decisions day over day. And it led to some really wild and crazy things. Like, for instance, somebody slinging coal in the morning off a barge and in the afternoon talking to people at Chase Manhattan about how, how much money can they get on a $30 million loan or what kind of interest rate can they get, right? And it led to 
a lot of people being able to do a lot of things that they found very interesting, making meaningful decisions about it, and still actually cohering as a company. Um, yeah. So anyways, that's the advice process uh, in a nutshell. I, I, I think that makes sense, right? It's, it's the people who have to live with the decision should be the ones making the decision, right? This, mm-hmm. is, uh, this is inadvertently removing that bureaucracy of um, we all have been in those meetings where there's 15 people and no one wants to make a decision because they have to ask 15 other people who want to ask 15 mm-hmm. other people. And mm-hmm. then you end up with those giant, slow, slow moving icebergs. Yeah. That they're trying to turn and they, they just can't. They just can't. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of, there was a lot of, I, I saw a lot of ties to uh, concepts like open book management, right? That's mm-hmm. ties to open book management where mm-hmm. have every, every employee is their own PL, educate them where the yeah. money is coming in and out of the company. I mean, um, one of the most interesting decision, uh, conversations I've ever had with, uh, with one of my teams was we were planning an, on, an offsite and someone said, well, why would we go here? Well, we can go there. We're there is just as enjoyable as here, but it's exponentially cheaper. We can save that money. And I was like, wow, like uh, you don't typically expect people to, to not self-censor, but to think about that. But when that's yeah. front and center and they go, oh, well, if I decrease these expenses, you know, maybe we can hire another Java meat widget. Who knows? It's a very powerful, <laughs> it's a very powerful concept. Yeah. Yeah. Could I, could I just uh, add to that? So that this, this, um, challenge that you bring up of like you know in so many companies that feel like no one can make a decision without consulting a million people right and i think in a lot of hierarchical companies there's a lot of confusion about who can actually even make what decision this was one of the most amazing things i found and it's part of this topic of managerial devolution um in these radically collaborative organizations uh there was so much more clarity around what a role was what it means to succeed in that role, what that role is accountable for, and what that role's domain of authority is, right? What are the autonomous decision-making rights that go along with that role that you get to make a decision about if you're the person playing that role and no one gets to trump you, right? There was so much more clarity and thoughtfulness around that. And it enabled people to be able to move forward very very quickly, very nimbly with an experimental mindset, with accountability, with ownership, with responsibility, right? Day to day and week over week. Now, here's, let me just give you an example of that. Although this wasn't, those terms that I just said weren't necessarily known and used, I think one of the things that we can point to that made extreme programming and continues to make so many extreme programming teams so nimble and powerful and quick is the fact that there is very clear domains of authority among the team, which means they don't have to make every decision by consensus. Rather, they can make decisions quickly, experiment, iterate, and move forward, right? Okay, so the product manager on an XP team, they have very clear success criteria. They're trying to create a product that is viable for the business, not just delightful to the users, right? And they have a domain of authority over the backlog. They get to decide what is the most highest priority thing on the backlog, right? It's That's their call at the end of the day. Everyone on the team can, give them an, can and should give them advice, right? But they own the decision and they constantly have to make that prioritization decision. Designers have a domain of authority over the user experience. Engineers have a domain of authority over the code, right? There's just so much clarity there and it enables the whole team to collaborate and move forward, but not to get bogged down in consensus. So that's another aspect of devolution, right? That's another aspect of devolving power into an organization as a large. If you create that level of clarity and you become very serious about not only the 
the success behind it, but the accountability and the demand of authority, you end up unleashing so much more agility into the organization and iterative power within it. Right. The idea of bounded context. I know where my, I know where I start, where I end, where you start, where you end. I trust you to do your thing. You trust me to do mine. The results speak for themselves. It really is yeah. very, very, very powerful. Um, another, another one you threw out here, where it kind of took me a minute to, to wrap my head around the idea of deficiency gratification, which yeah. you, um, which I, I have a note here, an environment where people mutually satisfy each other's higher level human needs, like security, trust, esteem, and respect. Mm-hmm. Explain that. Can you explain that a little bit better than I just laid it out? I mean, there's a lot to unpack there for our listeners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So the, the ideas behind it, I think are pretty simple, even if the terminology is new or different or even confusing. So um, the, the ideas, right, I've really, over the last 100 years, right, we discovered some pretty important stuff, stuff like, you know, what is DNA and all this kind of cool science and everything and relativity. But actually, I think the most important thing we discovered is that we're not just like every other animal. We are psychological beings. We're not just physical beings. And that means we have psychological needs, security, autonomy, fairness, esteem, trust, belongingness, love, meaning, purpose, et cetera, et cetera. These are things we actually need. Now, what's fascinating is those needs and the way they affect us when we are deprived of those needs is actually very similar to the way we are affected when we are deprived of physiological needs, right? Everyone here, everyone listening probably has heard of scurvy. What is scurvy? Scurvy is a deficiency illness. If you are deficient in vitamin C, you begin to develop all kinds of terrible, (laughs) disgusting symptoms that are scurvy, right? Um, But what's the cure? The cure is to gratify the deficiency. If you are deficient in vitamin C, you need to start eating a lot of oranges or taking a lot of vitamin pills, right? And you will actually, the symptoms will reside. In fact, you become very motivated to do something like that. You would die for an orange if you had scurvy, right? Okay, so the same thing happens when we are deprived of our psychological needs. When we become deficient in security or autonomy or fairness, esteem, etc., we are very deficiency motivated is the technical term for it. We are very motivated to rectify that deficiency, either by changing something within our environment or finding a new environment that would gratify whatever we are deficient in. This is the process of deficiency gratification. So this is really fundamentally, it goes back to a hypothesis that a lot of psychologists had in the mid 20th century. They, as they began to discover these things, and they were also sort of thinking about the boundaries between individuals and groups, they began to have this basic hypothesis. They said, we believe that what is good for the individual, individual will also be good for the organization, that if you create environments that are great for people, you'll actually create great outcomes for the organization. Now they said that, but it was a hypothesis. They didn't actually have the data to back it up. There had been no serious empirical studies at that time along these lines that would tell you whether or not this was true. Now we have those empirical studies. Now we know actually these fundamental human needs, when you create environments, for instance, that are high trust, for example, you create amazing outcomes for the organization. That trust alone is, is critical. And that's just one of the basic human needs. Like high trust environments on teams and within companies lead to 32 times the amount of positive risk taking. So you think about like running experiments, even though you're not sure if it's going to succeed or fail, right? So 32 times the amount of positive risk taking, 11 times the amount of innovation, right? And six times the ultimate outcome of economic performance, right? Over there, over uh, low trust environments. So 
that alone tells you that there is something really powerful about creating environments that are deficiency gratifying, that gratify all of our, what are called deficiency needs, right? The needs that if we are deprived of, we hurt, we begin to experience certain symptoms, psychologically speaking, and even physically speaking, right? This can really mess with our whole body, right? When we Mm -hmm. get all stressed out and everything, right? And so these companies have said, this makes sense, right? What can we do day over day, week over week on teams in little ways and big ways to make sure that we are creating environments in which people can satisfy each other's deficiency needs, right? In which people feel safe, in which people feel secure, in which people can make meaningful decisions, in which people feel trusted to do so, right? In which people have a sense of respect from the people around them, right? All of these little things and they come up with cool little practices. One of my favorites is a balance score. In fact, before we started recording this, Um, Jay asked me, hey, how are you doing today? And I said, I'm a five, right? Well, I was actually telling Jay was my balance score today is a five. I've been up uh, several nights now in a row dealing with a sick kid and now I'm very tired and I feel sort of out of balance, right? Like, you know, my my world's a little topsy-turvy, so I'm not at my best today, right? So if you create an environment in which people can um, tell each other things like balance scores, Uh, you can actually begin to quickly calibrate to the person that you're working with today, right? Oh, you normally say you're a seven. Today you walked in and said you're a three. I don't even have to ask you what's going on, right? I know that you're struggling with something today and I can calibrate the way I collaborate with you based on that. That's some of the ideas behind it. The, the importance of the the check-in in a meeting, right? Which we yeah. have kind of, which we have inadvertently rediscovered when everybody went working remote, right? Companies mm-hmm. that weren't necessarily used to working in a distributed or dislocated manner, they were forced to evolve and deal with it. The idea of, hey, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling today? If, you know, if you had to describe your current mood as an ice cream flavor, what would it be and why? What's your personal weather report? The, mm-hmm. you know, there are people who look at these things and the, typically the people who look at these things down their nose with disdain are from a dominator hierarchy type mm-hmm. environment where those mm-hmm. of us that understand that I, I need to, I need to feel a connection to the people I'm in this, for lack of a better analogy, trench with, it's very, very resonant. The idea of trust. Um, well, the most powerful human emotion is not anger, fear, love, or hate. It's it's hope. But the idea of trust, and if anybody's ever read The, the Moral Molecule by Paul Zak, trust is part of a virtuous circle. Well, if I trust Matt, Matt trusts me. It releases oxytocin in both of our brains, and it speeds up that positive interaction. So the 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 idea of a great leader just kind of letting go and trusting their people. Um, mm. uh, I, I'll, I'll give you a personal example. We had an all colleague town hall and, uh, just happened to be recently. My boss was on PTO and he was going to call in on PTO and mm. we all told him, no, don't call <laughs> in. We're good. We, <laughs> if you feel confident in us, we're confident that we can handle it. And the, the response, the response from the people who were in the town hall, a bunch of people actually said, um, it spoke a lot about the relationship you have as colleagues as with mm-hmm. your boss and with each other, that he trusted you enough to go on vacation <clears throat> during a town hall. And we had arguably one of the best town halls we ever had. So the, that <laughs> that trust pays itself forward, right? Yeah. Um, uh, what did my boss say? He's like, I didn't hire you so I could be busier, which I thought was really kind of funny. <laughs> um, so one of the other things you talk about, Matt, um, which I think is important to call out, your, your last... Um, uh, your your last imperative here is the idea of candid vulnerability. And you had a one-liner here, which I thought was brilliant, where you said, just because you leave behind your dominator hierarchy doesn't mean you leave behind your dominator behavior. 
And mm-hmm. I actually read that. And I kind of did the bill and Ted like, whoa, and then sat back because it's very true. You change the org and you change the culture, but that doesn't necessarily mean you've changed yourself. And that's a challenge to all of us, right? That we yeah. need to consistently use that mirror to look inwards. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like, we are all sort of here in the Western world anyways, we are all brought up in cultures of adjudication, right? Cultures in which debate is fundamental to the way that we interact with the people around us, right? And that's fundamentally a zero-sum process. That's a process in which one side wins only to the extent that the other side loses, right? It's the way we structure our courts, for a pretty good reason, I think, but it's also the way we structure government, right? Mm-hmm. It's the way it's the way uh, many teams are structured, right? And that's where this really breaks down, right? We we are taking an idea that may have you know uh, a validity in a certain context, and we're just applying it everywhere, right? Adjudication isn't something that actually will help a team, right? What we need to be able to do is collaborate, think together, explore ideas in a way that actually brings to light the underlying inferences, beliefs, assumptions, et cetera, that we have so that we can actually explore them together and we can actually begin to think together and collectively innovate together, right? But that's not something most of us know how to do, right? That's not what we've been brought up to do. That's not the underlying sort of tacit psychological routines going on in our brain. Uh, And so we have to practice it. And there are some very simple ways and yet powerful ways that some of these companies have taken to practicing in. One of them is is called the two-column exercise, which some of your listeners may have heard of. It's a really powerful and simple way to begin to look at the degree to which you are engaged in defensive reasoning as opposed to candid vulnerability. If you just take an interaction that you had with someone that you didn't think went very well, that felt very defensive or tense, and you transcribe it, and you write down on one column, here's all the things we said, and then on the other column say, here's all the things I thought, right? And you Mm -hmm. just step back and say, what you were thinking versus what you were saying, it is amazing the degree to which how much that reveals to you how in in uh, admired you can be in defensive reasoning, how mired you can be in self-censorship and in dominator behaviors and trying to maintain unilateral control, trying to not share underlying beliefs, assumptions, ideas, et cetera, because you're afraid they'll be threatened, you know, and invalidated, right, et cetera. So I, I, um, I find this it's really amazing when you look inside these companies, the degree to which people can say what they think, but also why they think it right to be vulnerable in that way. Uh, and it's so powerful to watch play out, right? Because they untether ideas from egos, right? And to see mm-hmm. that actually happen, right? In real time to watch it and watch a team come together in that way. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And I think anyone who goes through an experience like that would come out on the other side and say, I get it. That's radical collaboration. And that is so fundamentally different and so much more fun than what we normally do that I just want to do it again and again and again. (laughs) Right. It's one of those things where you get used to it and you're like, I don't want to go back to the old way. Like somebody sitting there giving me tasks, telling me how to do things. It's just, it it almost becomes antithetical to our existence. Uh, and, And I agree. I think the strongest, the strongest tool in any, um, leaders, arsenal coaches arsenal is a mirror use Mm. the mirror look at Mm. yourself examine yourself what you're thinking what you're feeling what you heard what you said um it's really really powerful because change you know change 
starts within. Uh, and with mm-hmm. that, Matt, um, I want to get you, I want to clear up your time. So I know you have a kid to worry about. I am going to have a link to the, sh- to the book in the show notes, but if people want to find you, they want to get in touch, maybe pick your brain, ask questions. Where do they reach out? Where do they find you? Yeah. Well, for starters, I have a website, mattkparker.com. On there is my email address, which I'll say here as well, matt at mattkparker.com. So don't be afraid to just email me. If you prefer, though, you can reach me on LinkedIn, which you can also find a link for on my website or on Twitter. Um, You can find me on both of those places as well. Just so you know, too, if you're listening to this, you're interested in the ideas around radical collaboration and self-management, and you want to meet a bunch of other people who are interested in the ideas, go to my website because I also have a link on there to a Slack community I created. It's it's small, it's growing, it's got a, a little over 100 people in it right now that are sort of talking about these ideas, thinking about them, about how they can apply them in their workplaces or how they can start new businesses with these ideas as well. So anyways, I just want to mention that too. Fantastic, fantastic. So Matt, on behalf of myself and all of our listeners, I want to thank you for taking the time this evening to chat with me. On behalf of Matt and myself, I want to thank all of you listeners for tuning in once again. Uh, Once again, if you uh, like what you heard, please give us a review, a rating, uh, some feedback on your podcast listening of choice. It does help other people find us. Uh, If this is your first time tuning in, why don't you visit our Discord server? We have a very vibrant community. I think we're just about at 500 active users and there's a lot of conversation going on. We talk about these things all the time. We're going to talk about this episode. So if you want to get in on the dialogue, please hop in and let us know. Uh, Last but not least, we are committed to being free. We do, however, have a Patreon to offset hosting and production costs. If you would be so interested, please reach out. Uh, We also have a quarterly benefits program where once a quarter we send you some swag. Last quarter was uh, last quarter was socks. This quarter, I don't know. Maybe we'll send everybody stress ball meat widgets. Who knows? Who knows? But until next time, uh, I want to thank Matt and uh, we will catch you next week. This is the Agile Uprising podcast signing out. <laughs>